Segura, and this is Phil in the Details, a podcast devoted to exploring the way philosophical wisdom and insights fill in the details of my favorite books, films, and works of art, provoking thoughtful discussion and meaning-making in the everyday life routine. Despite the fact that the series is focused on C.S. Lewis and the first of his space trilogy out of the Silent Planet, I spent a whole lot of last episode talking about Tolkien. Uh, it's it's really hard not to. Um, one, I really love Tolkien. I love The Lord of the Rings and took two, not one, two classes on him as an undergrad. And my professor, Dr. Key, was really just amazing. Um, I mean, I'd have taken any Tolkien class he ever offered. The first year I encountered his class, I was going with a friend to his Tolkien class where Dr. Key was teaching The Lord of the Rings in conjunction with Wagner's Ring, which is really kind of an interesting way of going about it. I wasn't in the class myself, but it was really, really fun to sit in on. Um, so when I got the chance to take his straight-up Tolkien class, uh, it was, at that point, actually Tolkien and Lewis, and I had, at that point, kind of had to read the entirety of both The Lord of the Rings and The Chronicles of Narnia consecutively. And we had lots of class discussions, the guest lectures at that point. Um, at our school, we had the president of the C.S. Lewis Foundation at the time. So... A lot of both, but the third time, it was just a class devoted to Lord of the Rings. So I guess I've got a lot of background, uh, a lot of resources on that one. So, um, you know, it's nice, but I, I mean, I'm definitely nowhere near like expert level Tolkien. Um, you've got Stephen Colbert for that, and he's super impressive. Uh, if you get a chance, go to YouTube, watch his clip of him throwing it down on Lord of the Rings stuff with James Franco. Uh, it's really, really, really cute. He really is a Tolkien expert. I'm not even close to that level. But my undergraduate school really spent, actually, quite a bit of effort on C.S. Lewis in particular, because, you know, as a Christian university, uh, and one that had a really clear mission of kind of spreading Christian thought, uh, we did a lot of Christian apology. So it was here that I actually read Mere Christianity as well for the first time as an attempt to kind of understand anything about the people that were around me. Myself, a kid from a very secular home in a very secular area of LA with a very secular public school education. Well, now, you know, I, I talk about Mere Christianity in my own classes and I tell my students that it's a really good book to read either for understanding your own faith as a Christian or as a way to kind of understand the faith of other people if you're not. Uh, it's a good digestible work, I think. Um, so I'm going to start there actually a little bit today. So Mr. Amir Christianity was originally presented as a radio show that C.S. Lewis did kind of around the 40s. Um, but afterwards, the transcripts were taken and anthologized in book form in about 1952. So these lectures kind of follow out of the Silent Planet chronologically, but the ideas are definitely relevant as they were already something he was thinking about, kind of reading backwards and analyzing the Christian themes as they peek through those narratives as well. There are some really interesting, uh, I think, and pretty logically compelling simple arguments that he makes in the early chapters to kind of establish the basis for a belief in a single creative God. And they all hearken back to the philosophies of people like Augustine and Aquinas and uh, in particular, some of the arguments that Aquinas makes in his famous Five Ways. Uh, in the second chapter, he takes the religious philosophies really into consideration that there is a monotheistic God and that dualism, a philosophy really very common in Eastern religions and even in some of the pre-Socratic elemental philosophies that are going on in our own Western tradition, so if you wanted a good kind of example uh, of that sort of thing in pop culture, you have to think Avatar The Last Airbender, and in particular, The Legend of Korra. And it's in season two. And there's a series of episodes that are kind of surrounding this Manichaean duality of Rava and Vatu. Uh, and it's a really equal and compelling situation where you've got forces of good and evil that stand in opposition but are on equal footing. So in his chapter, Lewis um, takes this kind of dualistic philosophy and this this chapter called The Invasion. And he calls it the manliest and most sensible creed on the market, next to Christianity, of course. But he also recognizes its pitfall. So here's a little bit about, a little bit of that argument. The two powers or spirits or gods, the good one and the bad one, are supposed to be quite independent. They both existed from all eternity. 
Neither of them made the other, neither of them has any more right than the other to call itself God. Each presumably thinks it is good and thinks the other bad. One of them likes hatred and cruelty, the other likes love and mercy, and each backs its own view. Now what do we mean when we call one of them the good power and the other the bad power? Either we are merely saying that we happen to prefer the one to the other, like preferring beer to cider, or else we're saying that whatever the two powers think about it, and whichever we humans at that moment happen to like, one of them is actually wrong, actually mistaken, in regarding itself as good. Now, if we mean merely that we happen to prefer the first, then we must give up talk about good and evil at all. For good means what you ought to prefer quite regardless of what you happen to like at any given moment. If being good meant simply joining the side you happen to fancy for no real reason, then good would not deserve to be called good. So we must mean that one of those powers is actually wrong and the other actually right. But the moment you say that, you are putting into the universe a third thing in addition to the two powers, some law or standard or rule of good which one of the powers conforms to and the other fails to conform to. But since the two powers are judged by this standard, then this standard, or the being who made this standard, is farther back and higher up than either of them, and he will be the real god. In fact, what we meant by calling them good and bad turns out that one of them is in right relation to the real ultimate god and the other is in the wrong relation to him. The same point can be made in a different way. If dualism is true, then the bad power must be, must be a being who likes badness for its own sake. But in reality, we have no experience of anyone liking badness just because it is bad. The nearest we can get to it is in cruelty. But in real life, people are cruel for one of two reasons. Either because they are sadists, that is, because they have a sexual perversion which makes cruelty a cause of sensual pleasure to them, or else for the sake of something they are going to get out of it, money or power or safety. But pleasure, money, power, and safety are all, as far as they go, good things. The badness consists in pursuing them by the wrong method or in the wrong way or too much. I do not mean, of course, that the people who do this are not desperately wicked. I do mean that wickedness, when you examine it, turns out to be the pursuit of some good in the wrong way. You can be good for the mere sake of goodness. You cannot be bad for the mere sake of badness. You can do a kind action when you are not feeling kind and when it gives you no pleasure simply because kindness is right. But no one ever did a cruel action simply because cruelty is wrong, only because cruelty was pleasant or useful to him. In other words, badness cannot succeed even in being bad in the same way in which goodness is good. Goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. And there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. We call sadism a sexual perversion, but you must first have the idea of a normal sexuality before you can talk of its being perverted. And you can see which is the perversion because you can explain the perverted from the normal and cannot explain the normal from the perverted. It follows that this bad power, who is supposed to be on equal footing with the good power and to love badness in the same way as the good power loves goodness, is a mere bogey. In order to be bad, he must have good things to want and then to pursue in the wrong way. He must have impulses which were originally good in order to be able to pervert them. But if he is bad, he cannot supply himself either with good things to desire or with good impulses to pervert. He must be getting both from the good power. And if so, then he is not independent. He is part of the good power's world. He was made either by the good power or by some power above them both. Put it more simply still. To be bad, he must exist and have intelligence and will. But existence, intelligence, and will are in themselves good. Therefore, he must be getting them from the good power. Even to be bad, he must borrow or steal from his opponent. And do you now begin to see why Christianity has always said that the devil is a fallen angel? 
that is not mere story for children. It is a real recognition of the fact that evil is a parasite, not an original thing. The powers which enable evil to carry on are powers given it by goodness. All the things which enable a bad man to be effectively bad are in themselves good things. Resolution, cleverness, good looks, existence itself. That is why dualism in a strict sense will not work. He distinguishes the dualistic philosophies, though, from common misconceptions about Christianity and that seeming dualistic notion of heaven and hell. To him, it's not the same thing. There is a difference in that Lucifer was created by the good power, meant to do good, but exercised the good that was his God-given free will. And it's here that he has to attack the most contentious aspect of Christian philosophy, which is the problem of evil. In the very next chapter, The Shocking Alternative, Lewis presents his answer to that problem. So here's a little bit of that as well. Christians, then, believe that an evil power has made himself, for the present, the prince of this world. And, of course, that raises problems. Is this state of affairs in accordance with God's will or not? If it is, he is a strange God, you will say. And if it is not, how can anything happen contrary to the will of a being with absolute power? But anyone who has been in authority knows how a thing can be in accordance with your will in one way and not in another. It may be quite sensible for a mother to say to the children, I'm not going to go and make you tidy the schoolroom every night. You've got to learn to keep it tidy on your own. Then she goes up one night and finds the teddy bear and the ink and the French grammar all lying in the grate. That is against her will. She would prefer the children to be tidy. But, on the other hand, it is her will which has left the children free to be untidy. The same things arise in any regiment or trade union or school. You make a thing voluntary and then half the people do not do it. That is not what you willed, but your will has made it possible. It is probably the same thing in the universe. God created things which had free will. That means creatures which can go either wrong or right. Some people think they can imagine a creature which was free, but had no possibility of going wrong. I cannot. If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that worked like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they must be free. Of course God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently he thought it worth the risk. Perhaps we feel inclined to disagree with him. But there is a difficulty about disagreeing with God. He is the source from which all your reasoning power comes. You could not be right and he wrong any more than a stream can rise higher than its own source. When you are arguing against him, you are arguing against the very power that makes you able to argue at all. It's like cutting off a branch you're sitting on. If God thinks the state of war in the universe a price worth paying for free will, that is, for making a live world in which creatures can do real good or harm, and something of real importance can happen instead of a toy world which only moves when he pulls the strings, then he may take it as worth the price paying. Then when we have understood about free will, we shall see how silly it is to ask, as somebody once asked me, why did God make a creature of such rotten stuff that it went wrong? The better stuff a creature is made of, the cleverer and stronger and free it is. Then the better it will be if it goes right, but also the worse it will be 
if it goes wrong. A cow cannot be very good or very bad. A dog can be both better and worse. A child better and worse still. An ordinary man still more so. A man of genius still more so. A superhuman spirit best or worst of all. How did the dark power go wrong? Here, no doubt, we ask a question to which human beings cannot give an answer with any certainty. A reasonable and traditional guess, based on our own experiences of going wrong, can, however, be offered. The moment you have a self at all, there is a possibility of putting yourself first, wanting to be the center, wanting to be God, in fact. That was the sin of Satan. And that was the sin he taught the human race. Some people think a fall of man had something to do with sex, but that is a mistake. The story in the book of Genesis rather suggests that some corruption in our sexual nature followed the fall and was its result, not its cause. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we all call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. So it's no secret that Lewis... And this is, of course, obviously true of Tolkien as well, is a Christian and that his books will inevitably infuse with that kind of foundation of his philosophy. It's significantly clearer in the Chronicles of Narnia series um, than maybe they are here in the Space Trilogies. Narnia, if read chronologically, though there's tons of debate about reading a particular order, and since Lewis actually wrote them out of order, um, the number order that you typically see when you buy the books versus what the actual publishing order is. So you'll see people will often read them as both the proper order, the publishing order, and the chronological order. They'll, they'll still begin chronologically, at least with a book called The Magician's Nephew. Uh, in it, there's a boy who happens upon this kind of transformative experience that takes him to another world entirely. When he gets to the world, it's essentially blank, just black nothingness. So while he stands here in the nothingness, he hears the sound of song, which eventually is accompanied by light and then material substance in the sky, stars on the ground, uh, and then more recognizable structures, things like flowers and trees. He eventually sees the source of the sound. Uh, it emanates from this lion who seems to be causing the world to come into existence through the song, himself always in existence, kind of taking Aristotle's words. Uh, the pure actuality, the pure thought, that which causes all things, the mover that moves all things towards being from possibility of becoming. Everything. His creation. As the book goes on, more information is given about this lion, who we come to know um, as the same one that's in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan, who in essence goes through a very similar situation of sacrifice that's akin to the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, here you get the curtain of the temple, the table upon which he's sacrificed splits in half, and you get this resurrection, uh, and he greets the children and proves to them that this is who in fact he is. Um, that is, of course, he is the one true creator, the actuality, the pure being, the one who puts all these things in motion. By the end of the series, the seven, you know, this is a seventh of a children's set of books, Lewis recounts and recreates, it's a really cool vision of Revelations or the end times. Uh, and then he gives his perspective on heaven, which I, I won't give here because I think everyone really ought to experience it, especially if you haven't read them before, before I ruin it for you. You have to go read it. I think it's a really, really cool imagining of that idea. It's a very clever description. And like I said in the last episode, Tolkien had tons of issues with Lewis's representation here. Uh, in particular with Chronicles of Narnia. His most ardent criticism is that Lewis's stories were just too close to the truths of the Bible, far too allegorical. He found them, you know, ironically, childish and simplistic, uh, and a little bit too fantastical, which, to be fair, it's meant to be a fantasy for children. 
not adults like Tolkien's. Um, but that's kind of the acknowledgement here. The Christian mythos here is accessible to even the simplest minds of existence so that the Christian story could be translated in a way that would at least um, be the least contentious uh, and then fit the acknowledged ideas of kind of what this perfect being would be creating this world from nothing uh, in accordance with his own will. Tolkien's aim obviously is a little bit higher than that. Um, nowhere in the Lord of the Rings, at least, is a creation story but you do get some of that if you read his Silmarillion, which is really the Bible of the Lord of the Rings, um, and that's where you would get this. Uh, so he here he kind of embeds rather, instead of the actual story itself, you get a lot of virtues and the values that are held in Christian philosophy. Uh, in fact, much of what is said in Lewis's Mere Christianity can be found in a practical application in Tolkien's mythos. For example, um, that section that we just read in The Shocking Alternative, you know, when we have understood about free will, we shall see how silly it is to ask, as somebody once asked me, why did God make a creature of such rotten stuff that it went wrong? The better stuff a creature is made of, the cleverer and stronger and freer it is, then the better it will be if it goes right, but also the worse it will be if it goes wrong. A cow cannot be very good or very bad. A dog can be both better and worse, a child better and worse still on, an ordinary man still uh, more so, a man of genius still more so, a superhuman spirit, best or worst of all. Tolkien uses this exact idea in his conception of the power of the ring. While the ring was made, obviously, by someone with evil intent, its power, and ultimately the evil someone himself, were not. Sauron, who once was the chief lieutenant of Morgoth, or Melkor, if you want to call it that, uh, he began as a Maiar, um, of the same kind of spiritual strength as Saruman, also originally good, and then eventually also Gandalf, who there's a lot of interesting discussion about Gandalf's, um, you know, connection to the mythos, as being more than just simply a wizard. In fact, the Dark Lord himself, Morgoth, was a Valar, uh, which is on par with kind of the highest powers of good that are created by the highest himself. Um, you could kind of almost think of these as like Christian archangels, the Iluvatar. Um, even looking at the etymology of that, you get that Iluvatar, Iluva, light. Um, of course, all of this is logically prior to the Lord of the Rings, but they're deeply embedded and discussed in Silmarillion. So by the time we get to Middle-earth, the good things created of power, Melkor, Sauron, and then Saruman, have corrupted themselves in trying to be more than they were initially given in position. Melkor's story, in fact, strikes a, heavily, a heavy resemblance to that of Lucifer's. You have the once beautiful archangel who, whose descent and all of that comes from his desiring his own will and power. Melkor in the creation of the world is one of the singers, note the connection here with Lewis, who contributes to that original creation. However, instead of going along with the harmony of the other Valar and fitting into the song, Melkor decides that he's going to go strike off his own tune and go against the wishes of Iluvatar. And he earns his place kind of in line with the biblical version of Satan. They cast him away from the good and desiring of his own power and realm. And he corrupts himself with good intentions into this evilness, consistent with Lewis's description of it here in Mere Christianity. This is all presupposed when the ring is created. And when it even becomes later on found again in the Lord of the Rings series. If you apply the conception prior here to Lewis's passage of the ring itself to the ring itself. It's really interestingly clear. The ring uses good power to corrupt the heart of the good into fulfilling the evil intentions of the bad. This is why when you get to the council of the ring in Rivendell, everyone is super reluctant to take it. Um, and if they have any sense, they won't. Uh, and you see Gandalf, who particularly makes that claim, who's obviously by far the most powerful person present, the recognition that he cannot take the ring. Freedom, as stated, allows things to go bad exponentially the more potential for good and power exists in that being. Gandalf, who is extraordinarily powerful, even claims that while his aim would be to use the ring for good things, 
he absolutely recognizes that he would be the most powerful and then from it would be so easily corrupted that this would be the highest danger for them all would be for him to handle it. Next, then you have the elves and men, of course. Until you get the least powerful creatures at this um, at this gathering, the hobbits, they don't have any extraordinary skill. They're not, you know, strong. There's not really a whole lot of wit. There's no magical powers there. So in essence, they're kind of forced to carry it because they're the safest possible bet. And even then, it's clear that even the least powerful can still have some handy things to give at. Look at Smeagol or Gollum as the example. Clearly corrupted into trickery and lying and stealing and cheating and then, you know, obviously the murders as well. He even plays an important part and even the most, probably the most important part uh, of some good about the ring. And it shows that no matter how small a being is, his part to play is as important and can be as powerful and even as terrifying. But as Lewis says in Mere Christianity, it's the free will to do either good or bad that makes any of the beautiful things in the world worth having or doing. It's a really compelling view. And the requirement of free will is that which makes us like God as created in his image. And interestingly, it's the presupposed part of the fall from Eden. Adam and Eve always already had free will. They were just told not to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they could do it if they chose to, which they did. Um, obviously, it's just a consequence that followed, but ultimately they learned what good and evil were by accessing the knowledge and the act that they already had. So they were really just shown what they already had, kind of in a way. It was the prerequisite. So, of course, we should expect that there should be some Christian themes popping up and in and out of Out of the Silent Planet as well. Though they won't be quite as obviously an allegory in the same way that you get with Narnia. There's no Jesus as a literal lion, and there's no breaking of the temple and the cloth and the resurrection and the false prophets and all of that. It'll be way more nuanced here. He will make comments on a lot of these concepts. Holiness, virtue, the metaphysics of God and good and evil. Um, and there's a lot of little hidden gems that kind of suggest even a different metaphysic. You really have to be looking for them, though. A lot of times those are embedded in the commentary about one of those Christian issues. Um, uh, but they can have other, you know, fascinating and oftentimes even secular implications as well. So to catch us up a little bit from the plot of the last episode, Ransom realizes at this point that he's been kidnapped. And he comes to, and he's, like, flying somewhere through space, far away from Earth and home. He kind of gets some, it's not good, but some information out of Devin and Weston. Uh, and a, some cryptic pieces of information about him more and more. And then he gets just anxious. So, not surprisingly. There's even a bit of this ethical exchange um, before they land on the extraterrestrial planet that they come to call Malachandra. Where Weston, in essence, kind of almost basically tells Ransom to just stop asking questions because you're not really smart enough or aware enough to understand the situation that you're in. Which is not cool. Uh, but also that he should just kind of accept it and let it be. Um, trying to appeal to him, which I think is odd. Weston tries to appeal to him as, like, this martyr um, of forced sacrifice, that there's some, like, duty to humanity that he has here, and that he should really be grateful in whatever role it is that he's serving, even if he doesn't understand what it is he's about to endure. This, of course, doesn't sit right at all, not surprisingly, for Ransom, and he protests, uh, and his ethical view, you know, going away from the utility of the moment is obviously about his own personal removed freedom. So the ethical question arises regarding the situation. Is it worth sacrificing a life for the good of humanity? Or is it unconscionable to take someone's freedom away from them regardless of whatever it is that they're sacrificing for, even if it's for the good of all mankind? This question has a lot of real application. Tons of medical advancement came from experiments that were done on the prisoners of the Holocaust. We benefit constantly from the medical advances that were learned in this process. 
but obviously those advancements come with an immeasurable cost. Lots of ethical questioning, right? So this is a significant issue. And I don't think any of us would really begrudge Ransom's desire for his own choice in this matter. Well, once they land, Ransom decides to bolt. <laughs> Not surprised either. And he ends up wandering around all of this new terrain with zero functional knowledge about where he is and what he's encountering. This always gets me thinking a little bit about what it would be like to be really early man, right? Where there's no written down knowledge, there's no con there's no institutional knowledge or community knowledge or historical knowledge to go by. It's just you and the experience. How incredibly absolutely lucky somebody like Ransom is in this situation when he decides to eat or drink anything. It's an incredibly risky situation. I mean, one bad choice here, and it's not like you would know whether or not you made a bad choice, because you wouldn't have any understanding at all on this totally foreign planet, and one decision, you're, you're just dead. That's it. It's crazy. Somehow he escapes that situation. He doesn't end up dying from anything he eats or drinks, and he ends up at one point staring across a lake at something kind of weird-looking, like beaver, squirrel, bear thing. And he realizes that this is an animal, but it's not just an animal in the same sense that he's kind of encountered animals on his own planet, but there's something at least intelligent with some kind of level of self-awareness, which frightens him, of course, obviously, because now we get into that discussion again of something with more prescience having more power, which power is scary. So this freaks him out, of course. But again, Ransom and the Aporia, he gets curious and starts to engage this creature, who will eventually come to call Hoy. So in this kind of a Pocahontas, Avatar, Call of the Wild, Matrixy sort of immersion story kind of thing, Ransom befriends and then learns from this new species, the Harasa, and gets deeply embedded in developing an understanding of their language. He talks about making this kind of melochondrian dictionary and starts paying attention to all the linguistics because, of course, he's a philologist. He likes language. But comes with that culture and their way of life. Uh, and ultimately something about the physics and the metaphysics of this new planet. In one of my absolute favorite passages of this book, Hoy and Ransom are talking just generally about the many points of contention between the lifestyles of the Harasa and Malachandra and man on Earth, or as they call it, Tholchandra. Uh, the major commentary that's being discussed in is this kind of idea of sexual monogamy, which makes sense for kind of this Christian story. Uh, a conversation which I think actually reveals a lot in uh, to Ransom and kind of this epiphany of man's sexual perversion, as he calls it. Uh, and it's actually what he considers to be the unnatural of the two different modes that they're discussing. And in the end, um, as it goes, Ransom pondered this. Here, unless Hoy was deceiving him, was a species naturally continent, naturally monogamous. And yet, was it so strange? Some animals he knew had regular breeding seasons. And if nature could perform the miracle of turning the sexual impulse outward at all, why could she not go further and fix it? Not morally, but instinctively to a single object. He even remembered dimly having heard that some terrestrial animals, some of the lower animals were naturally monogamous. Among the Harasa, anyway, it was obvious that unlimited breeding and promiscuity were as rare as the rarest perversions. At last, it dawned upon him that it was not they, but his own species, that were the puzzle. That the Harasa should have instincts was mildly surprising. But how came it that the instincts of the Harasa so closely resembled the unattained ideals of that far-divided species man, whose instincts were so deplorably different. What was the history of man? Hoy goes on to tell him that Meleldil, the universal creator, or at least the ruler as we've really yet to discover more about the entity at this point in the book, has made them so, and ascribes rational reasons to it being that way. 
How could there ever be enough to eat if everyone had 20 young? Pretty sensible description about the kind of economical resources of such a natural instinctual trait of this type of monogamy. He also rationalizes it from an emotional standpoint, asking Ransom, how could we endure to live and let time pass if we were always crying for one day or one year to come back? Death to nostalgia, which is very much a human thing. Embedded in this discussion thus far is this idea of perverse desires of sin, of course, akin to much of Lewis's Christian opinions as you see in, out of, in mere Christianity. Of course, it is least well known, you know, that Christianity espouses, of course, this position of monogamy till death do us part, and a particular position on the definition of marriage. This is really clear from the way the church has backed legal defenses of the one man, one woman debate, uh, which obviously there's more nuance to this now than there was even 10 years ago, uh, and in lots of recent challenges to marriage laws that have happened in the United States over the last couple of decades. But it's also clear biblically that sexual desires and acts be something shared only between married individuals after marriage rights have been secured, which means that sexual activity beyond the strict definition lies in the realm of sinful behavior. And this is the argument that you see very often, especially from uh, a much more literalist approach to the Bible. Thus, Ransom kind of easily comes to the conclusion within the contrast here that the Haras have kind of attained quite naturally, contrary to our own human condition, what man has, quote, sought as an unattainable ideal. Um, and this is expressly preached and established, and in this case, um, many of the more fundamentalist ver versions of Christian religion. This could be, although I'm not sure, this could be an attempt for Lewis to make this kind of social and ethical commentary, aiming to show the validity of the Christian notion of sexual sin, uh, supporting that whole you-can't-have-your-cake-and-eat-it-too kind of cliché. In fact, even at the beginning of the conversation, he's discussing man's tendency of what sounds like obsession. If a thing is a pleasure, a man wants it again and again. He might want the pleasure more often than the number of young that could be fed. As if suggesting that pleasure or the act of sex in the sin itself, the, it's the pleasure, not, not the act, but the pleasure itself that is the sin. In fact, he almost even tries to kind of justify the idea of monogamy purely for the sake of reproduction without the pleasure of it at all, citing what he calls lower animals here in the terrestrial world, Earth, and, and that they do just that. Uh, for me, the only thing right now that I can think of kind of fits this as penguins, right? But you get the point. Um, as if sex for reproductive purposes alone can be divorced from the human pleasure and almost seems to suggest here that maybe it should be and in that the Harasa kind of do this right in letting it just be that. But somehow I still feel that there's a different pull personally in this discussion. I get that Lewis wants to add Christian themes and issues and ideals and kind of through the apology legitimize them. But there seems to me something more fundamentally important than just the idea that you shouldn't have sex for pleasure all the time, especially outside the realm of marriage laws. Taken without the Christian apology, the following passage takes on far more personal significance, as Hoy here shares. A pleasure is full-grown only when it is remembered. You are speaking, man, as if the pleasure were one thing and the memory another. It is all one thing. The Cerrone could say it better than I say it now, not better than I can say it in a poem. What you call remembering is the last part of the pleasure, as the craw is the last part of a poem. When you and I met, the meeting itself was over very shortly. It was nothing. Now, it is growing something as we remember it. But still, we know very little about it. What it will be when I remember it as I lie down to die, what it makes in me all the days till then, that is the real meeting. The other is only the beginning of it. You say you have poets in your world. Do they not teach you this? Again, Ransom, and mankind by extension, is made to look like the uncivilized, unaware fool. But what Hoy is saying seems to me more than just don't have sex all the time for pleasure. 
Instead, sex is just an example here of one aspect of humans that we're classically bad at, which is drawing significance from a single event. White talks about sex as an event of great significance than just the one act of pleasure, and really that's the key. It's not that the pleasure is a sin, but in overindulging in it, or one, you know, as one would overindulge in something like food over and over again, which is the example he uses, and that those diminish the value of the pleasure itself. The sin here really is gluttony that he's talking about. And this seems really more fitting to me, and a little bit more significant than the previous kind of obvious interpretation, as it feels more true of humans, that we are kind of classically bad in understanding the gravity, the value, the weight of something until it's so far behind us. And instead of seeing it as an event that still continues to have value to us in the present, we ascribe this deep feeling of nostalgia and resentment and regret and sadness that it's over and done. We see life as images randomly placed in succession without any significant flow I blame Hume for this. Why is this David Hume's fault? Well, David Hume's philosophy really killed philosophy for a minute in history, and there's still a lot of discussion that's kind of indebted to the rift that he created. Hume's philosophy, in essence, breaks up life into a series of fragment snapshots. Like, I, I kind of like talking about this as kind of scrolling through someone's random Instagram feed. The moments of raw experience in each of those posted pictures and then our minds do a lot to fill in the gap to provide kind of the consistency that's a coherent narrative there. But that narrative we build isn't immediately real, even if it's based on the real. His strict empiricism suggests that the mediation that happens with every raw experience and our almost immediate mental exercise of taking that kind of abstracted impressions of reality and then building patterns and concepts and ideas, all of this mental activity actually pulls us away from the more real sense data of experience, and that can be manipulated, warped, and unreal. As a result, memory, and the way we revisit it over time through the lens of more impressions, concepts, learning, and collections of experience, is for him nowhere really near the real thing. This had massive implications in philosophy, in particular in the way in which this forces a dismissible of probably the most important aspect of understanding, which is cause and effect, which was aimed at ending, you know, he was using that as kind of a way to end causal arguments that were often given for proof of God's existence from kind of religious philosophers and metaphysicians. But maybe in a more scary sense, this destroys any and all scientific knowledge we have as well, as cause and effect is really the very necessary aspect of discovery and methodology there. So, no religion, okay, but also no science. And in a way, there's no real knowledge if you accept that argument outside of that moment-to-moment -moment experience that disappears from reality almost in instantaneously. To give Hume some credit, he does build some aspects of knowledge back from there, uh, namely the logical necessity of the analytic a priori statements that then build into the linguistic foundations of arguments, things like math, all of that gets preserved. But even then, this became the basis of many philosophers that followed him, people like Immanuel Kant, who tried desperately to save scientific inquiry. Unfortunately, though, to some degree, Hume's philosophy still colors our perception, particularly of memory. Few would argue that their memory of eating pizza is better than actually having the piece of pizza in their hand and eating it right now. Interestingly, though, Lewis's character Hoy provides us maybe an alternative to that kind of modern view of, of memory. Hoy comments on the human inability to understand the idea that past events are not at all in the past, but rather things that continue to unfold, and there's kind of a Hegelian sense of unfolding here, that they actually gain significance as life continuously flows in time. They are not diminished, as we tend to believe, because we attach that notion of human forgetfulness, of self-doubt, and our ability to kind of accurately remember things, uh, in our belief that our thinking is constantly warped, and then what was once true event the past is something kind of significantly less real as remembered now. I have issues with that thinking, I really do, and so does Hoya here, apparently. We like to think that we experience something true, raw, as we call it, only in the moment. And that once that moment ends, 
Note that we even give it an ending. It's spliced for us. Memory becomes something lesser, and because of it, lower quality. And yet sometimes it's really only upon the reflection, and oftentimes when those events are coupled together and some time has elapsed that hindsight gives us the real significance of that moment. It's why we put so much stock in history and preserving history is giving that kind of collaborative historical view. What the Harasa are espousing here is that the event and the memory of the event cannot be divorced. And I love that. You can't take them in isolation, that they are inherently valuable, the moment and the memory when there is connection and fluidity. I really, really love this interpretation. Because really, if anyone wants to argue that the event is the only important thing and all that time and everything else is less significant, we miss such a massive chunk of existence. And kind of from a more Heideggerian perspective, it fails to realize that we never truly experience anything really in the raw anyway. We are always already interpreting the world through our own particularities and biases, and so the present is always a memory instantly anyway. This view is perpetuated in the end of the chapter as they relate the discussion of sex to the idea of evil. Ransom brings up the issue of the Nakra, uh, a character which is kind of often represented for the Harasa death, and which Ransom kind of implicitly suggests is evil, which he says Melodil has let in to the world, a uh, kind of a reference that's akin to the idea that Lewis is explaining in detail in Mere Christianity for the problem of evil. Hoye explains the difference in evil here. I long to kill the Nakra as he also longs to kill me. I hope that my ship will be the first, and I the first in my ship with the straight spear when the black jaws snap. And if he kills me, my people will mourn and my brothers will desire still more to kill him. But they will not wish that there were no Naraki, nor do I. How can I make you understand when you don't understand the poets? The Nakra is our enemy, but he is also our beloved. We feel in our hearts his joy as he looks down from the mountain of water in the north where he was born. We leap with him when he jumps the falls. And when winter comes and the lake smokes higher than our heads, it is with his eyes that we see it and know that his roaming time has come. We hang images of him in our houses, and the sign of all the Harasa is a Nakra. In him, the spirit of the valley lives. And our young play at being Naraki as soon as they can splash in the shallows. Ransom has a really hard time grasping that concept of mutual respect that's inherent to this description, that, that two-sided coin. So he goes on. I do not think that the forest would be so bright, nor the water so warm, nor love so sweet, if there was no danger in the lakes. I will tell you a day in my life that has shaped me, such a day as comes only once like love or ser serving Oyarsa in Meldalorn. When I was young, not much more than a cub, when I went far, far up the Handermit to the land where the stars shine at midday and even water is cold, a great waterfall I climbed. I stood on the shore of Balki, the pool, which is the place of most awe in all worlds. Because I have stood there alone, Melodil and I, for even Oyarsa sent me no word. My heart has been higher, my song deeper all my days. But do you think it would have been so unless I had known that in Balki, Naraki dwelled? There I drank life, because death was in the pool. Pleasure too often sought and indulged loses its meaning in much the same way that Hoy is kind of describing life without the possibility of danger or death or good without the existence of evil. Tolkien does the same thing in the Silmarillion. He created the elves first and the elves gave, you know, were given everlasting life and so they would perpetually exist. When you see them in The Lord of the Rings, their songs are always somber because they have been the arbiters of history. They were there and have always been there and will continue to always be there. So their songs are sad. They have a note of kind of a slight despairing quality of melancholy because they are constantly aware and have the memories collected of all of the bad. Uh, even with the good, there's always kind of this tinge 
of the bad. So when man was created, man was given, as Tolkien describes it, the gift of death. That there is something positive in having that end note, that resting place, that release, that gives life substance and meaning by a direct contrast. Without that contrast, that unrecorded desire, that restraint, pleasure loses its significance when it is once finally attained. Same here with the idea of life and death. Without death, life becomes less precious and meaningful. And it is a constant reminder here of the danger that he's talking about and Hoya's arguing that gives us reason to appreciate the moments and ultimately then the memory of those moments that exist in between. As a result, memory becomes equally important as it is the thing that gives the lasting purpose and meaning and value to those events that, you know, have ended, so to speak, in his assessment. And that those are few and far between and then you've got to keep those for the sake of significance and purity. And, neatly enough to tie a bow on this episode, all of this goes back to that juxtaposition that makes up the bulk of the discussion of mere Christianity earlier. And while Lewis dispels the philosophy of dualism before answering the problem of evil, he does kind of suggest that there is a need for some kind of force of opposition. But this is set within the continuum of a good, which is choice. For him, there is only the good. But man can choose it or not choose it. Yet the choice is of necessity and design. In order to understand it, the choice must be there. In order for goodness and happiness to exist, the choice must be there. Here, Hoy gives recognition to that concept, too. For goodness to be understood, for life to be appreciated, death must be in the pool. Contrast is necessary for understanding and appreciation. Without it, it's nothingness. So there has to be and also not be. To see the shadows for what they really are requires the light of the fire in the cave. The good is the ever-present beginning. That which allows for life and understanding, as Plato even argues in the entire corpus of his dialogues. It seems as Lewis would agree here. Look at that full circle. Next episode, we'll actually see yet another view of memory. So we might have to revisit maybe a little bit of that Paul Recur from the second season. Uh, but also we'll take a look at some of those natural order philosophies of the modern world, which seem to be pretty impressing upon uh, the, the ideas that Ransom brings to this new planet. Uh, and he sees Malachandra through that lens. And so we'll see him take that understanding and then also be put in his place with a little bit of karma there. There's lots for him to learn. And he is trying to learn from his time there. But yet he continues to do, you know, the same kind of basic things man does that fall back on egocentrism and speciesism uh, and all of that we'll have to address at some point as well so until next time as always i'm stacy cabrera and you've been listening to fill in the details thanks for listening <laughs>